0: Well good morning, everybody. It was so good to hear so many of you raising the Hallelujah this morning, and we hope that if you're visiting with us today at Bachelor Creek, that you feel welcomed, that you feel loved, and that you'll leave today challenged and even more grounded in your faith than when you came in. I want to start off today with a story about a university professor of philosophy who had one question for his students for their final examination for the semester. He simply brought a chair up to his desk, set the chair down, and said, using everything that I have taught you this semester, all the philosophical lectures and arguments that I've presented to you, prove to me this chair does not exist. So right away, all the students began to unfold their binders, and they grabbed all their notes, and they started writing feverishly. Long written arguments, pages and pages long, some taking an hour and a half to two hours using really deep, heady, philosophical logic, strong arguments. That is except for one student who turned in his paper after just one minute. His answer to the challenge, prove this chair, does not exist, consisted of two words, what chair? <laughs> Smart kid, huh? Well, today we are dealing with the question of God's existence. And doubting the existence of God has been a tool and tactic and ploy of Satan ever since the beginning. Just go all the way back to the Genesis account in chapter 3, and you'll see that Satan has always been trying to generate uh, doubt and questioning of God. But he's amped up his tactics in the last several millennia to where he's not just getting human beings to question, did God really say? He's trying to get people to question, is God even really there? Does he exist? And we find these growing um, contingencies of people today in our world who look at things that you and I as followers of Jesus believe, and they examine our statements and they say, you know what? I just don't believe God exists. That's the stance of the atheist. Or if someone says, I can't know if God exists, that's the stance of the agnostic. But both of them are really saying the same thing, is there's just not enough ample evidence for me to conclude definitively that there is a God. And quite honestly, the Bible itself does not go into deep systematic theology to prove God. It declares God over and over, but it does not defend the existence of God. In fact, the scriptures intentionally leave room for doubt. Because without doubt, we wouldn't have the capacity for faith we wouldn't have the ability to exercise our faith and just how important is faith when it comes to God let me share with you how important it is hebrews 11:6 here's what it says and without faith it is say this word with me impossible Without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him, listen to this, must what? What's the key word here? Believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Please know here, it doesn't say that anyone who comes to him must prove that he exists or must know that he exists. We're simply called to trust that he exists. Because if the existence of God was irrefutable and undeniable and indisputable, there would be no such need of this thing that we call faith. Believing in God would then become mandatory and not optional because God has simply removed all the options for us. But God in his wisdom has made faith voluntary in our relationship with him. In fact, listen to what we read in Hebrews 11:1. Now, faith is the confidence in what we hope for. And it's assurance, it's that that inner certainty we have about what we do not see. So faith is absolutely necessary, but God says, I don't want you just to believe blindly. So God has given us ample evidence all around us so that we can have a well-reasoned, a well-documented, a well-grounded faith. But he's not given so much evidence that it doesn't require any faith at all. And the reason why this conversation is so important, friends, because you've probably witnessed the same thing that I have. Over the last 10, 15, 20 years, we have seen a rise in what many of us would label as a militant form of atheism. A group of people in this world who are hell-bent on driving the idea of God out of the consciousness of mankind. And this movement has their own evangelists. Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, writers of some of the best-selling books in the last decade or so. And they have their own great commission, which I believe is best summed up in the words of the Nobel laureate Stephen Weinberg when he says this, Anything we scientists can do to weaken the hold of religion should be done and may, in the end, be our greatest contribution to civilization. Some of you might remember the late astronomer and scientist Carl Sagan, who said the following, I'm not saying I know there is no God, it's just that if there is, no evidence exists for it. Now, I certainly do not believe that to be true. But here's the problem that we're faced with every day. God cannot be measured. He can't be cataloged. He can't be calibrated. God can't really be experienced with the five senses. It's not like we can say, that smells like God. No. We can't reach out and touch the divine. But you know what else can't be experienced with the five senses? And we all know it's absolutely there and it's true. Love. You ever see anybody say, look, there's love. Look, it's going across the sky. Anybody ever say that? And everybody take hold, grab of it. Mmm, that tastes like love. No, we know this thing called love Because we experience the effects of it, right? We know that love is undeniable because the effects of it are all around us and sometimes inside of us. So the fact is, this morning, I cannot categorically prove to you that God exists. No one can. You're not going to leave here today with the smoking gun that you can go approach all your atheist friends with and say, Solomon told me about this, and it settles all the answers, Answers all the questions. But in the same vein, nobody as well can categorically prove that God does not exist as well. In fact, some people would say that it actually takes more faith to not believe in God than it does to believe in God because the evidences for God are all around us. In fact, let me make a shameless promotion here, okay? On June 16th, a couple of men from our church are going to be teaching a class. This class is going to be based on the book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. It's written by a guy named Frank Turek. Maybe some of you have seen some of his videos on YouTube. He's a noted Christian apologist. And Joe Frieden, one of the young men from our church here, is going to be one of the guys leading this class. And he will tell you that outside of the Bible, this book has shaped his faith more than any other and it's given him the confidence and the assurance to engage with people in deep conversations about the existence or non-existence of God, and he feels well-equipped and well-prepared to have those discussions. So if this is an area where maybe you felt a little timid to talk to people about your faith because you think they're going to shoot back some question and you're going to look like an idiot and not have the answer, I'd really encourage you to sign up for this class. We're going to have more information about it and to sign up for it next week but put that on your to-do list because these conversations I assure you because of the culture we live in and the growing rise of atheism you're going to be having these conversations with friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, okay? So, June 16th. And you know why it's important for us to discuss these kinds of things? Because of what we read from Peter in 1 Peter 3:15. Here's what he says. Here's his charge to the church. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. I'm not saying that you have to be some great intellectual academic and and be able to answer all the deep ideas out there dealing with the existence or non-existence of God. But come on, people. At least have at a very, very base level A knowledge of not only what you believe, but why you believe it. And Peter says, when we have these discussions, when we enter into these conversations, you should do so with what? What's the key words? Gentleness and respect. Which can largely be lacking in these kinds of conversations we have. Now a few years ago, in fact it was 2016, that that I talked about this idea of God's existence. And during that sermon, some of you might remember it, I took more of an apologetic or more of a scientific approach to things. We looked at things like the Kalam cosmological argument, the teleological argument, kind of like what we did a few weeks ago when we talked about is science and faith, are they compatible? Can they be bedfellows or do we have to choose one or the other? So because I've already laid that out to you about three years ago, and if you're interested, I can get you a copy of that sermon if you want, and because we've got a class that's going to come up and lay the foundation for a lot of this heavy, deep, kind of scientific idea stuff and logic and reasoning, I thought this morning what I wanted to do is take a more practical, more experiential approach to talk about the existence of God. And we're going to be looking at the words of someone in Scripture knew God, loved God, walked with God, worshiped God like few others in scripture. In fact, we treasure his writings today and we go back to them for comfort, for help, for guidance and to express worship ourselves. Do You know who I'm talking about? David. David the psalmist. So follow me, if you would, in Psalm 19. We're going to start in verse 1, and listen to what the psalmist says, and you're going to see him kind of make this case for God throughout Psalm 19. Okay, here's what he says. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they just reveal this knowledge They have no speech, they use no words, no no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course." It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Now he switches gears. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. Listen to this. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Can I get an amen? Amen. So interwoven all throughout Psalm 19 are all these reasons why the psalmist will tell you, here's why I'm not an agnostic, here's why I'm not an atheist, that the evidence is all around me and in me. And you know where he starts? He starts with the idea of creation. He says, the heavens declare, the skies proclaim. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal this knowledge of God. One of the most renowned and well-respected scientist of the last century was a guy that we all know. His name was Albert Einstein. After his 50th birthday, Einstein gave an interview, and one of the people giving the interview asked the question, do you believe in God? Now, here's Albert Einstein, this this great, noted scientist, and I want you to listen to his, his response. He says here, I'm not an atheist. The problem involved is too vast for our limited minds. Now listen to how he describes it here. We are in the position of a little child entering a huge library filled with books in many languages. The child knows someone must have written those books. It does not know how. It does not understand the languages in which they are written. The child dimly suspects a mysterious order in the arrangement of the books, but doesn't know what it is. That, it seems to me, is the attitude of even the most intelligent human being toward God. We see the universe marvelously arranged and obeying laws, but only dimly understand these laws. So here's what Einstein's saying. He says, I, as I observe the universe in its grandeur and its order, I realize there are laws at play going on all around us that can't even begin to be explained and can't, with our limited understanding and our limited mathematics and our limited physics, they, they can't be calculated. And even though he didn't have a name for this God or a frame of reference for this God, he came to the exact same conclusion the psalmist came to in Psalm 14.1 when the psalmist declared, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Einstein, this great mind, said, there is a God. There's evidence for him all around us. By the way, when you're having your conversations with your friends who are skeptical or not believing, don't start with Psalm 14:1 with them, OK? That's not the gentleness and respect that Peter's talking about, all right? Well, there's another reason why David reveals his belief in God. You know what it is? It's the laws of God, the laws of God that testify to God's existence. Do you remember what he said about the laws of God? Here's what he said. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect. Statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. The commands of the Lord are radiant. All of them are more precious than gold, and they are sweeter than honey. So here's what the psalmist does. The psalmist moves from God's general revelation that he's given us in creation, where we can just look at creation and the order and the systems of everything, and we can say, There is a God. And he moves now to specific revelation of how this God has revealed himself to us in his word and specifically in his laws. And there's something about the law of God. Listen to me here. There's something about the laws of God, the commands of God, that resonates deeply within the heart of every human being. Do you know what we call this? Maybe you can make a little sideline note right here. When it comes to the laws of God, we call this the moral argument. And here's what I mean by that. We as human beings, we collectively conceive of what is absolutely good and what is absolutely evil. Not only do we have the capacity in ourselves to identify and acknowledge this is good, this is evil, But every human being as well feels that inner obligation within them to do and pursue that which is good and to try at all costs to avoid that which is evil. And here's what the argument says. Because every human being has this wiring in them to be able to acknowledge and then pursue good and to shun evil because we have this internal governor in us called our conscience, that won't let us sleep at night, that makes us anxious because we we didn't do what we should have done or we did what we shouldn't have done. And the question is, where does that come from? It must come from a good, objective, moral, standard giver. If you and I are nothing more than just this Mass. If we are just the purely physical byproduct of the evolutionary work of the cosmos, then let me ask you a question. The cosmos is amoral. Not immoral, amoral. In other words, what I'm saying is asteroids don't feel guilt. Jupiter doesn't distinguish, is that good or is that bad? All the particles, everything, all the physical matter that make up what we call the universe, if you and I are simply descendants of that, how do you get moral human beings who know right from wrong, good and evil, from amoral matter? It simply doesn't happen. Now, The interesting thing is this. People across the world who have never even been exposed to the laws of God, we might even call it the Ten Commandments, very basic laws of God, people in those remote tribes and regions of the world who haven't even been exposed to these things, never even heard of them, you know what the truth is? In those cultures, you will find people who have these things imprinted on their souls. This is the argument that Paul makes in Romans chapter 2. Here's what he says. Paul says, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, it's not been given to them, they're not under it. Listen to this. When they do by nature, when they do just because that's how they were created to do things that were required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. They don't have that list hanging in their house of one through ten, here's what you should do. They don't have that, but yet they're kind of doing those things anyway because of the way God made them, the way God wired them. And listen to this. They show that the requirements of the law are what? Written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them. Their thoughts saying, oh man, you shouldn't have done that. Or man, they needed you to do that and you did and you failed big time. Their conscience is even accusing them. And at other times, even defending them. Do you know what Paul's saying here is that every human being who's born in this world has been wired by their creator with a sense of oughtness. I ought to do that and I ought not do that. That within every human being, we all have a line. Sometimes that line is really high for some individuals. Sometimes it's low for individuals. It's a moral line. And when we cross that line, we feel guilt. We feel conviction, right? It's as the philosopher Peter Kreef says, listen, he says, the moral line everyone draws is the one that says, never disobey your own conscience. Believe it or not, even Hitler had lines he would not cross. So the question is where does this come from? Scripture says it comes from an absolutely good moral lawgiver who you and I would call God. So consider this, okay? If you're talking to a friend of yours who's skeptical and they don't really think that they believe and they're saying there's not really a whole much evidence for it, you can try to do something in your conversation with them to kind of provoke them, to kind of get a rise out of them. I would encourage you to to say something like this, Just say, I don't understand, I don't get what the big deal is when it comes to human sex trafficking, I don't understand why people get all bent out of shape and why there's so much outrage in the world about somebody kidnapping a woman and kidnapping some children and putting them into the sex trade industry. I mean, why in the world would we want to punish people who do things like that? They're simply trying to earn a living just like every other human being. It's a dog-eat-dog world, right? Do whatever you can to survive. Now, about this time, I'm guessing your friend's probably going to start to bristle up a little bit And they're going to say, no. No, that's not right. No, I understand the outrage. Here's the outrage about it. You can't deprive somebody else of their their freedom and their rights. You can't exploit them. You can't make them engage in an industry that, that goes against everything about them simply so you can earn a profit. You can't take somebody else's dignity away. You can't steal them from their family. You can't make them feel like they're just a used piece of meat for somebody else's pleasure and then profit over it. It's wrong, wrong, wrong. It will always be wrong. And then just say, where did we get this sense of what is right and where is wrong? Where do billions of human beings living all across the globe in different cultures, all born with different customs, how is it we all seem to come to the same conclusion that some things will always be wrong and immoral? Why is it human beings, the vast majority of them, maybe not all of them, why do we universally agree that abusing a child is wrong? Why do we get indignant when a woman is raped? Why do we feel an inner sense of anger when we learn about ethnic cleansing and seeing a whole group of people wiped out in the name of genocide? What causes that, that anger, that righteous indignation in us whenever we see justice perverted? Why do the overwhelming number of people in the world agree that what Adolf Hitler did was reprehensibly evil? Why do people believe that what the terrorists did on 9-11 can only be defined by the words evil? And what the firemen and the rescue workers did that day as they rushed into those burning buildings, why would they say that those things are noble and honorable as they tried to save lives? Why is it that we as mankind collectively agree on these things? Why is it no matter what culture you go to, truth-telling is always going to be valued over deception? Fidelity and faithfulness is going to be valued over adultery. Working hard for something is going to be valued over stealing somebody else's stuff. That kindness is always going to be elevated over cruelty. That loyalty is always going to be elevated over backstabbing. Do we say, well, it's just by chance that six billion people agree on all these things? Or maybe it's the idea that we have a creator in whose image we are made, who wired each and every one of us in a way that we know right from right and wrong from wrong and good from evil and immoral from Moral. So creation, all around us, testifies to the existence of God. The moral argument, the laws of God, both written and unwritten, imprinted within us, testifies. To the existence of a moral creator. And lastly, the psalmist is going to tell us that his personal relationship with God testifies to God's existence. David believed in the power of God to change a man's heart and character so that it would ultimately reflect the character of God himself. Did you hear what he said? Help me discern my errors. Keep keep me from sin. Help my mouth and my heart to be changed in a way that pleases you. We read one time in Scripture in the Psalms where the psalmist says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit in me. David believed in God because he experienced God in a profound way. And there's multiple people in this room who could use the exact same argument in their life. You would agree with what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 5 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Right? And so many of us in this world, in this room, could say, That's me. That Jesus changed my attitude. Jesus changed my aspirations. He changed my priorities. He changed the way I think. He changed the way I speak. He changed my relationships and the the way that I relate to people. That's your story. The old is gone, the new is here. You know, I watched a pretty cool film on Netflix. I think it might still be on there. Some of you might look into it. It's called The Case for Christ. It's a movie that was released a couple years ago, and it's all about, uh, it's based upon a book and the central character of that book, a guy named Lee Strobel. Years ago, Lee Strobel received a a law degree from Yale University. He then went on to become an award-winning journalist for the Chicago Tribune, and he was also an atheist. That's why when his wife came home one day and said that she had become a Christian, he about hit the roof in his anger. Furious, angry. How dare she bring that into our home? So he set out on a mission. He said, I'm going to use everything I learned in law school. I'm going to use all my investigative journalist skills, and I am going to disprove this Jesus to my wife, this whole notion of Christianity. I'm going to expose it for the utter nonsense that I believe it is. So Lee Strobel went on a mission. And he looked into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, investigated it so thoroughly from beginning to end. And guess what happened to him in the process? He became a follower of Jesus. God changed this once foul-mouthed, heavily-drinking, non-believing man, and he changed him into a better man, a better dad, and a better husband. Now let me just tell you right from the get-go, and I'm just gonna be completely honest about this, okay? This idea of life change is not exactly the best argument to start with. Do you know why? Because it's subjective. You know, you could have somebody say, Muhammad has changed my life. My little Hindu idol that I keep on my shelf with all my other idols, that has changed my life. So it's not the strongest argument that 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 we can expose or start with. But for those of you who've experienced what I'm talking about, you know the power that's there and the power of a changed life, friends, is proof of something really, really big happening in that person's life, what we would call God. So today, I've not taken the position of a debater. I've not taken the position of an arguer because here's what I believe. I believe that doubt will most be extinguished and expelled when people are exposed to the providential love of God and the creation that he's put around us. The protective love of God, when he's given us these guardrails, this inner moral law, that says if you want the best possible existence, the richest possible life, keep your life within these guardrails. That's the protective love of God. And doubt goes as well when we experience the personal love of God when he comes in and we say, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit in me, and he does. For those of you who are here today, and you're living life and life's disappointing seems like there's more bad that's happened than good not turned out the way you wanted can I let you in on something your life from the day you were conceived was always meant to be tethered to your creator and when you try to find hope meaning purpose, joy, without your creator, life is always going to be disappointing. Life is never going to be fulfilling. But Jesus said there's an abundant life that only he can offer. And it's when you are tethered to him, and Jesus came to this world to make sure that that relationship with God can be there. He serves as the glue that holds us and the Father together. So if you keep on pursuing life without God, hope without God, happiness without God, I'm going to tell you, friends, you are on a quest. It's like looking for the fountain of youth. You ain't going to find it. You weren't created to live life apart from your creator. So today we invite you, during our time of invitation, to come. Come. I'm going to challenge you and encourage you to do something that the psalmist wrote. The same psalmist that wrote Psalm 19 also gave this challenge to all of humanity and everything that he observed and everything he felt and everything way that he was changed. Here's what he says to mankind. It comes from Psalm 34.8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Each week When we gather, we taste. We take the elements of the Lord's Supper. We eat and we drink. We taste and see the goodness of God. And here's what we do. Every time that you put that bread in your mouth and you put that juice to your lips, here's what Scripture says you and I are doing. We are making a declaration. We are saying to ourselves to those around us, to the church at large, to the world in which we live, we're saying, I declare this to be true. Not just that God exists, but that God has moved so lovingly and mightingly and benevolently on behalf of humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. And here's what Paul says we declare. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, here's what you proclaim, you're saying something you're declaring something you proclaim the lord's death until he comes that i believe jesus came jesus lived jesus died jesus rose and jesus is coming again amen let's pray father thank you that you've given us all the evidence we need to make a conclusion that you were there In so many ways, you're there. You've given us enough evidence that we can look at, but it still requires faith. So help us to understand, Lord, every day of our lives that without faith, it is impossible to please you. Because those who come to you must believe not just that you exist, but that you are good. And God, your goodness and your love was displayed on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago where Jesus, the architect of creation, Jesus, the one who came to be the fulfillment of your very law and who lived your law perfectly. And Jesus, who invites every man and every woman saying, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever opens and lets me in, I will come in and fellowship with them. You want relationship with us. And this is what we declare, Lord, every time we eat and we drink, that you moved so lovingly on our behalf. So thank you, Lord, for all the evidence that you've given around us. May these tools equip us to engage in dialogue confidently with those people who are on a truth quest in life. And Lord, we open up ourselves to be a tool in your hands, a catalyst by which faith might be generated in the heart and the life of someone who today, right now, does not believe. So Lord, thank you that you're you and that we get the privilege of acknowledging your goodness every day of our lives. So, Father, move in hearts at this time, we pray, in a way that only you can do. We submit ourselves to you now and ask for your spirit to have its way with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.